Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. So 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 8. And the word of the sovereign Lord reads, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law was not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. This is the word of the Lord. The late Jerry Bridges once wrote, God's law as a rule of life, is not opposed to grace, rather used it, re, excuse me, rather used in the right sense, it is the handmaid of grace. Or to use an analogy, it is like a sheepdog that keeps driving back into the fold of grace when we stray out into the wilderness of works. So I want to welcome you back to our, our series on First Timothy, and we begin this series as a church family with a purpose, and that purpose is to grow in our understanding of God's church. If there's something we need to really be familiar with in times like now, as churches lose their way, and as churches give up their right and ability to gather together and lose their sense of who they are, I think it's important for us in this time to learn what it means to be part of the church. And so we've been digging into this this book with questions of what the church is, what the church is for, and what the church is to do. And as we talked about last week, in the, in the weeks before, God's church, when the church is God's church, and it is to be what He wants it to be, and it's to do what He wants it to do. And so it is our responsibility as members of that church to learn what God says about these things. And this letter, I think, is a perfect um, opportunity for us to examine that. It's perfect for our purposes because Paul sent this letter to Timothy, who was a pastor in the, in the church in Ephesus, and he was left there to take care of the church there. Timothy was left there by Paul because the church needed, at that time, reformation already in the first century. Years before, Paul had warned this church that they could lose their theological footing and go astray, and it's exactly what happened. The church in Ephesus ordained or put into leadership men who were just simply unqualified for leadership in the church, and they began to to teach false doctrines, including legalism. And and because of that, the church began to experience a number of of behavioral issues. I want you to realize when leadership goes wrong and doctrine gets sideways, then behavioral issues follow. It's just a natural consequence of that. And that's what we were seeing in this church. And so Paul wrote this letter to give guidance to Timothy in order for him to set things right. And because of that, because because of that, this letter along with 2 Timothy and Titus, they really serve as a blueprint for building and preserving and even restoring, if necessary, the local church. And to this point in the letter, Paul um, has told Timothy that he he must order these false teachers to not teach anymore. 
And he says that these men that are doing this, they're not doing this because they love God or, or, or God's people. They're doing this because they want prestige. They want to be teachers of the law. They want to be famous. They want to be, they want to be well thought of and influential. They want to be rich. And so they don't really serve the church for the right reasons, but actually for the wrong reasons. And not only is that, is that the truth, but they're ill-equipped to do this. They don't even know what they're talking about, Paul says. Right? They don't even know what God's law is or even how to use it properly, which then sets up you know, our conversation that we began last week. Last week we began by asking, what is the law of God and what is it for? And then how does that relate to Christian life? And as we talked about, Paul says in, in, in this text, in verse 8, he says, now we know that the law is good right, if one uses it lawfully. And that's where we begin to unpack this last week. And if you remember, I, I said last week, there's just way too much for us to cover in one sermon and that you needed to listen to that message last week and then also listen to the one we're talking about this week. And so here's my, my admonition for you. If you've missed last week, today, or sometime this week, I'd encourage you to go back and then re-listen to the, the previous message because what we're going to talk about today will make a whole lot more sense. And I promise you, these two messages together will be a lot more helpful to you. But with that, let us briefly just review the major points so we can have a context of where we're going today, what we need to keep in mind. The first one is the greatest problem, one of the greatest problems facing the church today is simply we don't understand the law. That's a foundational thing we just need to keep in mind. And the evidence for this, right, the evidence for this is that there are so many Christians who end up on, on either extreme ends of the law. They either become antinomians who... who don't think there is a law and that has no bearing on Christian life at all, or you have the legalist on the other end who think all the rules apply to everyone all the time and you need to make sure you do all this stuff or you're not really saved. Both of these attitudes, both of these perspectives are errors, right? Now with that, we, we took some time and we established what the law of God is that Paul is referring to here. Because even that's a big question. What does he mean by the law, right? It is, right? It is the moral law, is what Paul is referring to, right? It's not the civil law that governed Israel right, as a nation, and because that ended when the nation of Israel ended in, in AD 70, right? And it's not the ceremonial law, right, that was fulfilled in Christ. What he's talking about is the moral law, the law that's for all people at all times, and it's universal across the board. It is, it is the law of God's righteous requirements for all of mankind. And it's summarized for us in the Ten Commandments. And it's further sum summarized by the greatest commandment, as Jesus said, right? When he said to love God and love others, what he was saying is that is the summary of the entire law. By the way, if somebody asks you what the gospel is, or, or somebody says, you ask somebody what the gospel is, and they say, what's well, to love God and love others? You say, no, that's the law because you can't do that. I mean, as hard as you try, you can't keep that perfectly. You need the gospel, right? So even the greatest commandment is the summary of the law. But last week, we talked about what the law was and the purpose of the law. It was important for us to get our heads wrapped around that too, right? We talked about the four purposes of the law. Number one, it was given to reveal God's holy character, right? It was given so that we'd know who God is and we could see His holiness. Number two, it was also given to restrain sin in the world as we know that God's moral law is written on mankind's hearts and that's the basis of all civil law everywhere, by the way, is, is God's moral law. Number three, the law was given to serve as a mirror 
so we could see really clearly who we are in light of God, God's law. And so we can actually see how desperate our need for Christ is. The law is what prepares us to receive the gospel. And then four, the law was given to sanctify Christians. To sanctify us as we continually seek to walk in obedience and in holiness. Right? And we're reminded continually of our need, our continuing need for Christ and His grace. You don't need grace one time in your life. You need it continually for the rest of your life. Now what we know... So now we know what the law is, the moral law, and we know what it's for. Now we turn to the question which we left off with last week, which was, was how do we use the law lawfully or rightly, as Paul says, right? Because what did he say? He said, now we know the law is good, that the law is beautiful, the law is glorious. We know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully or rightly. Which, by the way, the church has made a mess of this so many times throughout the centuries. And so that's where we're going to pick up today. This is kind of part two of that. And the first thing I want you to re- notice in verse 9 is, is the fact that Paul says that using the law rightfully or, or, or justly or lawfully is rooted and it's dependent on our understanding of something. Notice he says, understand this. So when Paul says, understand this, it's time to slow down and think, what's he talking about here? Understand this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. And I'm going to stop here because we have to unpack this before we move on. Otherwise, we're going to mess this up. Because Paul is telling us that if we were to use the law correctly, there's something we need to understand. And what we need to understand is there are two groups of people here that he's talking about. Two different groups of people with two different relationships to the law. And their identity, their identity here determines how they're going to use the law or how we would use the law with them. You see, I have two different groups of people. The law applies to them differently based on who they are, which means if we're going to answer the question, how to use the law rightly, the first question we need to ask is, as it relates to who? Because if you get this wrong, we're going to use the law incorrectly. How do, you, how do we use the law rightly as it relates to someone? Again, there are two different groups of people that Paul's referring to here, and it re- relates to them differently. Verse 9, he says, Understanding this, the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. The law is not laid down for this group that he calls the just. It's not laid down for this group, but it's laid down for that group. So there are two different groups of people. Again, I know this might be elementary, but we really have to get clear about this. Right? We need, what we need to see here is there are two different groups of people. As Paul says, the just, or another way to say the just is the righteous. Right? And then there are those who then, by implication, that are not just and who are not righteous. That's the two groups of people that he's referring to here with respect to the law. So you have the just and you have the unjust. Now, Paul uses a lot of descriptions or descriptive um, words here when he talks about the unjust or the unrighteous. But for the moment, let's just, just stick with that simple term so that way it's easy for us to work with here. Right? Because these two groups of people he's talking about, these are two groups of people we need to understand because the law, I want you to know, relates to them differently. Now, the first thing we need to establish then is who these people really are. Who are the just and then who are the unjust? Well, if we know the gospel, if you've heard the gospel, then you know 
who the righteous are. You know who the just are. You know the ones who are just. They're the ones who have saving faith in Christ Jesus. As we're told in Romans chapter 1, right? Paul says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the, the righteous, the just, will live by faith. And if that's not enough to be compelling, then in verse chapter 3, verse 22 of Romans, he says, And this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And even more specifically, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 11, Paul even gets more clear. He says, Now it is clear that no one is justified before God by the law, because the righteous will live by faith. Right? The word righteous and just can be interchanged here. And what we'd understand is the truth that the just or the righteous people that Paul is talking about here are not those who keep the law. They are those who live by faith in Christ. They are the people who have repented and believed the gospel. They have been justified by God through their saving faith in Christ. And because of that, not because of what they've done, but because of what Christ has done, they are righteous and just. And Paul says, the law was not laid down for them. It was not given for them to have to focus on and to obey in that sense. But on the other hand, Paul says the law was laid down for those who were not just, the unrighteous. And what do we know about them? Well, we know two fundamental things. Number one is the unjust are those who don't have faith. I mean, if the just are the ones who have faith, then the unjust, then by implication, are the ones who don't have faith. They're not trusting in Christ by faith. They are not believers. In fact, they're the opposite of the just. They have not repented and put their hope in Christ alone. That's number one. Number two, the, the, the other thing we know is they are identified by Paul not simply as unjust, but he identifies them by their sin. Notice that. Paul doesn't say the law was laid down for the unrighteous, the unjust. He doesn't use a simple term to to summarize them, he gets very specific and says it's a lot more than that. Look what he says here. He says, the law was, was, laid, was not laid down for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly, sinners, for the unholy, profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, Men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is count contrary to sound doctrine. Notice that Paul's going to identify this group of people not by a label about being unjust. He, ad he identifies them by their sin. Look at the list. These are all personal descriptions. And more to the point, these sins... I don't know if you realize it, but the way that Paul structured this reflects something very familiar to us. We should see it. It reflects the Ten Commandments. I don't know, I don't have time to go fully in depth on this because, we, you know, we want to keep this to two sermons, not three, okay? Right. But there is a correlation. I'll just, I'll run through it briefly. The terms lawless, disobedient, ungodly, sinners, unholy, and profane, what you need to realize is all those describe people who are sinning against God. That's what all of those refer to, right? 
which by the way correlates to the first four commandments because the first four commandments and the Ten Commandments had to do with our relationship with God. The remaining terms are sins against people, like those who strike their mothers and fathers. That's the fifth commandment. Murders, sixth commandment. The sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, seventh commandment. Enslavers, or literally what that means is people stealers, right? Eighth commandment, liars and perjurers, ninth commandment. And then whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, we can wrap that up in the tenth commandment. Now, like I said, we could spend a whole sermon on this subject, but suffice it to say, what Paul is not only identifying these unjust by their sin, but by implication, he's identifying those people who break the law. That's his point. You see, what Paul is, is saying is, is the law is not laid down for those who have faith in Christ. The law has been laid down for those who break the law. The law has been given for those who break the law. What law? The moral law one we've been talking about. The law where we find out in the Old Testament is summarized by the Ten Commandments. The law that reveals the holy and righteous and just and character and nature of God. The law that's written on our hearts. The law that restrains evil in the world. The law that acts as a mirror revealing how broken we really are. That law was laid down for all who break the law. You see, the opposite of those who are just, the opposite of who are righteous, those who, those who are unjust and who are unrighteous are those who break the moral law. It's as simple as that. The unjust are lawbreakers. But in the world we live in, especially in a postmodern world, we make this really, really complicated. We, we really do. Because we don't want to think in terms of breaking God's law. We don't want to think in terms of rebellion against God's decreed standard. We don't want to think in terms of our failures actually being acts of lawlessness. We don't want to think of ourselves as criminals before God. That's why people, when they talk about sin and breaking the law, they don't actually say those words. They say things like, well, nobody's perfect. We just make mistakes. We just fall down. We just slip. You know? We don't think of ourselves as people who have... We, 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 what we do is we actually think of ourselves as people who have good natures. We believe with all of our hearts. We have good intentions. We believe that we, have, we, we are good people at heart. It's just the circumstances we find ourselves in or just a momentary lapse of, of judgment or, or, or a moment of weakness, we occasionally slip and trip and fall and make little oopsies or little messes. And even when we sin in an egregious way, we feel like we're almost entitled to it because we're just only human because no one's perfect. But that's not who we are. That's not who mankind is. We break the law. And do you know why? It's because we are by our nature's lawbreakers. It's, it's who we are. We're not good people who occasionally do bad things. We are lawbreakers who are restrained from doing all the evil we would want to do by God's grace and by the law written on our hearts and also the consequences of the laws that govern the world around us. Just think about what you would have done in your life before, before Christ. If you do, you could get away with it. 
We've all had those thoughts. We are by nature lawbreakers and rebels against God. It's who we have been before Christ. And the law was laid down for lawbreakers. That's who the unjust are. They're lawbreakers. But let's look even closer to this. Not only are they lawbreakers in general, those, are, those who are unjust are identified again by, by Paul with their sin. He says that they're ungodly, sinners, unholy, profane, those who strike the fathers and mothers for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers. This is something we need to meditate on. This is something we need to take to heart here. The just or the righteous are identified by Paul right, as being just, and he just calls them just, but now he... But, and they're just, we know, by, by faith in Christ. They're not just because of what they do, right? We know that, right? They're not just because they have this magic ability to keep the law. They're just on the basis of what Christ has done. But notice, the unjust are identified by Paul with their sin. He doesn't simply call them unjust. He identifies them with their sin. Their sin is part of their identity. Don't miss this. It's who they are are and how they live. I want you to hear what I'm saying here. We know that those who were not just, those who are just, those who are saved, we know that those who are righteous in the sight of God, they're not saved simply because they figured out somehow to keep the law. They're not saved because they never, ever break the law. They're saved by what? By their faith, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, we know that those who are in Christ, those who have been saved, do break the law at times. And, Paul, I mean, and John tells us, if we don't think we do, then we're lying. We still sin at times. We might be just but we still continue to fail to keep the law. But notice, Paul doesn't say that that's the, their identity. He says that they are justified. They are just. They're not identified by their sin. And this is something important we need to take ownership of because Paul identifies the unjust by their sin. Because their sin is their identity. And, and it's, not, it's not just what they do. It's, again, who they are. And because of that, it re it's reflected in their life. And their life reflects their sin and their rebellion, their life reflects a blatant disregard for the law. And what this means practically for us is it gives us cause, as Paul says, to examine ourselves to see if we are of the faith. Because the hard truth is this. The hard truth that many people don't want to hear is this. If you make a profession of faith in Christ, but if your life is marked by a willful, habitual sin, and your life is marked by willful and perpetual law-breaking, there might be a chance you're not justified. You might not have met Christ. You might not have saving faith. Now let me walk carefully here. Because again, I'm going to say this again. Christians will sin. And Christians at times will fall into horrendous, deep sin. Horrific at times. But the difference in their lives, the difference in their lives is they will not be continually characterized by that sin. 
And the reason for that is true Christians will love God and love His law and hate their sin. Our confession of faith in chapter 9, excuse me, 19, paragraph 6 says this. It says, true believers are not under the law as a covenant of works to be justified or condemned by, yet it is very useful to them and to others as a rule of life that informs them of the will of God and their duty. It directs and obligates them to live according to its precepts. It also exposes sinful corruptions of their nature, hearts, and lives. As they examine themselves in light of the law, they become further conv- they come to further conviction of, humiliation for, and hatred of sin. You see, no matter how often he or she might struggle with their sin, they will hate it. And they will continually repent of it. Even if you've got to repent of it 10,000 times for the same sin this month, you will not be marked as a, with a love for your sin and a blatant disregard for God's law. But on the other hand, those who claim to be Christians who think they are free from the law of God and they say, I love Jesus, but live in unrepentant sin as if it's okay. Right? Those who will unashamedly live like the world, thinking that they've actually met Christ, they will break the law with no sense of remorse and say that I'm under grace and not under the law. These are the people I worry about. These are the people we were right to worry about. There was a man who came and pulled up in the parking lot one day before youth group. He pulls in here with his truck, kind of, kind of funny, hops out of his truck, goes to the back of the sanctuary where the steps are back there, and he puts his leg up on one step and he kneels down, closes his eyes, like almost Tim Tebow style, you know, starts to pray. And I, I went up to him and I asked him if he needed help. And he's like, oh, no, I'm good. I just came here to get a little Jesus. I said, what? <laughs> and, and so he and I began to talk and had a short conversation. And I discovered, first of all, that he was a little drunk. But he was feeling a bit melancholy because, you know, of a situation. He's, you know, had five divorces, living in a fifth wheel in town. He's working as an over-the-road contractor, you know, so he doesn't have a, a permanent home, right? And he's been, you know, sleeping around, and he's partying all the time. And he said, he, you know, he said he just needed a little Jesus because he, you know, he, he knows him, right? And he just wasn't, hasn't been so close. I've been feeling distant from Jesus. And said, really? How's that possible, right? Right? So he came to the church so that he can just have a little moment of an experience. And I said, you don't need to come to a building to, to be close to God. I said, you need, you need to do what all Christians need to do, which is repent and believe the gospel. I didn't say it like that, but I mean, you know. And he's like, oh, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm good. Man, me and Jesus are great, you know what I mean? And he began to tell me how, you know, he was saved by some big-name pastor down south, and he was baptized in the Pacific Ocean. And he knows, right, he's got his ticket punched. He's going to heaven, and him and Jesus are friends, you know. And I was like, well, that's fine. But what about all the drinking and the five divorces and the sleeping around since then, right? And, 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 and I said, if I were you, I'm not, I'm not here to judge you, but I'm, I'm telling you, if, if I were you, like, I, I would be concerned that you're actually in the faith. I said, what you need to do is you need to repent and turn to Christ in faith and hold on to Him alone. And he said, no, I'm okay. I believe in Jesus. I believe in Jesus. I said, the Bible calls you to repent and believe the gospel. 
you know, to turn towards God in faith, right? Truly trusting in Him. And, and if you do, you'll naturally begin to obey. In fact, you'll begin to hate your sin. And he looked really perplexed at me. And I said, like drinking. He goes, man, I really like drinking. And I said, like, what about the sleeping around? He goes, man, I really love the women. <sighs> I'm telling him, like, if you don't, if you're not worried, I'm worried for you, brother. Right? Because your life betrays the fact that you don't know Christ. Well, then he shook my hand and said, I'll come see you on Sunday. And he gets his car and he leaves. Here's the bottom line truth. Those who are in Christ are not saved by obedience to the law. They'll never ever believe that or say that. But those who are in Christ will not be defined by their sin like those who are not saved. Because they will not live in willful disobedience. As our confession states, the Spirit of Christ subdues and enables the human will to do freely and cheerfully what the will of God be what the will of God as revealed in the law requires. Those who are in Christ, though they will be far from perfect, will live lives that will, will not identify them simply by their sin. But on the other hand, those who are not righteous, those who are unjust, right? Paul defines them by their sin. And they're defined by the fact that they willfully and unrepentantly violate God's law. Because as as we said, the law of God reveals the holy, righteous character of God, and God will not abide with those. I want you to hear me. God will not abide with those who willfully and unrepentantly violate His law. He just simply won't do it. His character will prevent it. He will not abide with those who are unrepentant lawbreakers. <laughs> well, Jesus died for my sins. Isn't that enough? If that is your response to what I'm saying here, I'm afraid you don't understand the gospel. God the Father killed His spotless Son and poured out His awful and terrible wrath upon Him to make atonement for the vile, horrendous sins of your life. He killed His Son to satisfy the demands of the law. And you think you're going to be okay by using that sacrifice as a license to, to willfully violate His law anytime you want to. The very law that's a reflection of His holy, righteous character. If that's the way you think, I'm going to say you're in danger. That's a dangerous way to think. The law reveals the holy character and His demand for His people. And again, right, let's come back to our confession, paragraph 5. The moral law, and I want you to hear this, the moral law forever requires obedience of everyone, both those who are justified as well as others. This obligation arises not because not only because of its content, but also because of the authority of God, the, the Creator who gave it to them. Nor does Christ in any way dissolve this obligation in the gospel. Instead, He greatly strengthens it. We as Christians are not saved by our obedience to the law, but as Christians, we will not continually live willfully in disobedience to the law. Because the law reveals the holy character of God, and it, re it reveals His will for us as His people. Which then leads to the third purpose of the law. Now, the second one, as we talked about, is restraining sin. But the third purpose of the law is to act as a mirror. The law is a mirror used to show us, ourselves, and others who we really are in light of God's glorious standard. The law shows us the perfect obedience that's required by the law, and it is perfect obedience that's required. And it reveals us to us how we have utterly fallen short. The law shows us that we are 
lawbreakers and then shows us we can't keep the law on our own. It's impossible. And then it reveals our true need, what our true need is. Our true need isn't for us to try harder. Our true need isn't to be more sincere in our faith. Our true need isn't to work more or to be more religious. Our true need is we need to be rescued. That's our need. Because we can't do it. Our true need is we have hard hearts that need to be supernaturally changed by God Himself. Our true need is is for someone to come and wash away our sins. Our true need is to come along and give us perfect righteousness so we can actually stand before God without fear. Our true need is for someone to do all the things for us that we cannot do for ourselves. The law reveals our true need is nobody else but Christ, which means we need to agree that the law is good. We need to agree that the law is right. We need to agree what it means to break the law, which means we need to call Sin, what it is. Sin. This is one of those subjects that we just, I'm afraid that so many people have lost their way in this. We don't want to say even that word. But Paul in here lists and delineates for us what sin looks like, what it looks like to break the law. He shows us that sin is sin. Again, let's look at how Paul frames it. He says that the law was laid down for the lawless and disobedient, ungodly and Sinners and the unholy and profane, those who strike their fathers and mothers, murderers, sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Now we look at this list, and what we need to acknowledge, and what we need to admit is all of these things that Paul lists here, all of them are sin. They are all violation of God's holy moral standard. All of them. And those who willfully and unrepentantly break these laws are the unjust and the unrighteous that Paul's talking about. And and there's one thing that we need to just tackle head on. One of these things on this list, we as Christians, we're going to struggle to talk about. And you all know which one I'm talking about here. Because we live in a world right now that says one of these things on this list doesn't belong here. One of these things on this list is not a sin. Especially if what's done is done between two consensual adults in a loving monogamous relationship is what culture is is telling us. But here it is. On the same list. In fact, it's right next to sexual immorality. Paul is being very clear here. He says that homosexuality, the practice of homosexuality is a sin. Okay? Church, okay? I don't write the mail, I deliver the mail. Okay, And Paul says it's a sin. It's a sin. Christians, if there's a truth that you must declare that is a sin, it's this one. We must declare it with love, absolutely, but we must be very clear that it is a sin. But I want to tell you right now, if there's a subject that pastors and Christians don't want to talk about, it's this one today. Because there is so much pressure by our culture, and even our government, by the way, to either not talk about this or just to say it's, it's not a big deal, it's not, not, not a sin. And because of, that, they're too, because of that there's so much pressure, Christians don't even want to give a straightforward answer on it. Listen to a Christian squirm on television. 
And believe me, people are going to ask that question of Christians all the time, publicly. You know why? Because they know it's going to make them squirm. And, and they're going to know where you fall off on the spectrum. In fact, there's so much pressure when pastors address this issue, even in their own churches, they spend 20 minutes qualifying their answer. You know what I'm talking about. Pastors who need to take, who want to address this subject will, you know, will say things like, well, you know, before we talk about this, I want you to know I love gay people. They're wonderful people. I have gay friends. We need to be careful to walk carefully here because we need to be careful not to offend anybody. But the funny thing is, Bodhi Bakum says, we don't do that with any other sin. Let's just replace the word here. All right, Think about this. You know, I love adulterers. You know, adulterers are really, really wonderful people. In fact, I have friends. Some of my best friends are adulterers. We need to be careful not to offend anybody who commits adultery. You see, we wouldn't do that. We would just call it what it is. I mean, think about this. I love people who are profane. I mean, I mean some of the some of these people who are profane are really really good people. I mean, a lot of my friends are ungodly. Right? I mean, I have friends who abuse their parents. We need to be careful not to offend anybody who's a liar. You see how, how culture has pushed us in this ridiculous box here. Paul makes it clear. Homosexual behavior, just like sexual immorality, is a sin. It's a violation of God's law. And as such, God's justice is, will be done. It's important that we get clear about this because I'm going to tell you, many of us have this conversation. Do you think homosexuality is a sin? Yes. Why? Well, because the Bible says that it's an abomination of God. Oh, you mean that Old Testament law, right? Yes. Oh, so what about eating pork and uh, wearing clothes of two different kinds of materials? Do you eat pork? Well, yeah. Do you eat, you know, do you wear clothes that are made of cotton and polyester? Well, yes. Well, you're a hypocrite then. And you know how the Christian responds? Um, 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 right? Because we struggle to understand the distinctions between the civil and ceremonial moral law. But praise the Lord that Paul actually sets for us the moral law here in the New Testament context. And by addressing this, he violates, he not violates, but validates, he validates for us the, all of the moral law. Because as we said, if the moral, as we said, the moral law is the law for all people at all time. And so, not eating shellfish or wearing, you know, uh, certain kinds of clothes, those things were never part of the moral law. And not only did Paul make a point to help us to see that, but he made a point to help us to see that this is a summary of the Ten Commandments. He also made a point to define for us this very specific sin. He made a point to define it. Homosexuality is a direct violation of God's holy standard. And to willfully and unrepentantly engage in this activity is to be among the unrighteous, which, by the way, is why Paul wrote 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. He says there, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And notice he says there, Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, 
nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Paul says that those who do these things are the unrighteous and they will not inherit the kingdom of God. And that means they are under the law. Those who engage in this activity are lawbreakers like other sinners. And those who willfully and unrepentantly do so are the unjust. Now, if you spend any time at all on this subject, you will hear a number of objections, especially a very common one. And I don't have time to unpack all of them, but there's one I think we need to address. The most common objection is to say, well, that what Paul's talking about here, right, homosexuality in general is not what he's, he's, he means. Right? They will say that Paul's talking about, he's not talking about loving, monogamous, same-sex relationships. What Paul, they say, is talking about is, is abuse and exploitation. They, they say that he's talking about pedastry, or men abusing boys, or he's talking about male prostitution. But he's not supposedly talking about consensual same-sex relationship. Well, the problem is that just doesn't hold any water. The primary reason why it doesn't hold water is the Bible at all times defines all sexuality outside of marriage to be a sin. All of it. Every form of it. Fornication and adultery are regarded as egregious sins against God. Marriage is the only lawful context for sex. And by the way, every word of the Bible that deals with marriage always universally affirms that marriage is between a man and a woman, period, end of story. There's no other way to define it from the Bible. You can't do it. There's never been a prophet or apostle in the church that ever would say anything differently. Marriage, biblically speaking, has been between a man and a woman, and all sexual sexual activity outside of that context is sinful. It's a violation of God's moral law. And if that's not enough to convince you, then I want you to understand the terms that Paul uses here. In 1 Timothy, in the Greek, he uses a term called arsenokoites, which is a term he actually made up to, 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 to actually bear his point. This is a term that's made up of two different words, and, the, and they mean man and bed. Right? There's no mention of children. There's not a mention of abuse. There's not a mention of prostitution. It's two words, man and bed. And the implication is this. Two men in bed together doing what married people are doing in bed. That's what he's referring to here. It's very clear. The term Paul uses here is broadly applied. It prohibits all homosexual activity across the board. It's universal. Whether it's loving or not, whether it's coercive or consensual, whether whether it's whatever it is, it's all sinful, as Paul says. And there's no getting around it. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, Paul is even more explicit. He uses two different expressions. One is arsenokoite again, and also malakoi. And he does so clearly to express both sides, if you will, of the same-sex relationship between men. I mean, you have the, the male, and then you have the effeminate partner. And if you don't understand that, then come see me after. But broadly speaking, Paul clearly addresses homosexual relationships. Homosexuality is undeniably a sin. And so to say otherwise, I want you to understand, to say otherwise is to deny the truth of Scripture. You cannot legitimately say, I believe the Bible is the Word of God, and say homosexuality is not a sin. Because the only way to do that is you have to give up on the inerrancy and the sufficiency of the Scriptures to say what it says. 
and read into the text what you want to see. But if we're Christians, we got to set aside our philosophy, our culture, our emotions, and submit ourselves under the Word of God. And the Word of God says, this is a violation of God's law. And those who were unrepentantly practicing it are unjust and under the condemnation of the law. And to deny that simply is to deny what the Scriptures teach on this subject. Now, on the flip side of this, the church historically has made a mess of this particular issue. There's a tendency for us as Christians to look at homosexuality and say, yep, that's a sin. Yep, God hates that sin. And then take the law and wield it like a club and bludgeon to death all those people who struggle here. We have done a really good job over the last several hundred years of beating people to death with the Scriptures with this particular set of verses. In fact, there's a pastor of an independent fundamentalist Baptist church in Arizona, and I say that as a part of a, seems like a strange new network called the New, uh, or the, yeah, the New Independent Fundamentalist Baptists. But he looks at this particular and says, anyone who's ever been guilty of participating in that sin can never be saved. That's, that's, that's his broad pronouncement. Now, he can't back it up with Scripture, but it's what he says. That they can never turn from their sin and be saved. He must have missed that part where, where Paul says, as such were some of you, right? Now, this is an extreme example, but it reflects a prevalent attitude in the church. And that is this sin is truly sinful, but the rest of them, eh, not so much. That somehow God really hates this one kind of sin, but somehow he can be really, really gracious towards all the other sins. That's been a very common attitude in the church. In fact, right, look with me again what it says here. It says, lawless and disobedient. For ungodly and sinners, unholy and profane, those who strike their fathers and mothers for murderers, sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Here's the thing. Notice that they're all on the list together. And Paul didn't say, hey, by the way, this one's particularly bad. He says, all of these, all of these are the unjust. Here's the thing we need to realize. Here's what we need to be, where we need to be as a church. If you're willing to call homosexuality sin and call people to repent, but you're okay with your buddy living with his girlfriend, you're walking in hypocrisy. We just need to call it what it is. If you believe that those who practice homosexuality are under the judgment of God, but you're okay with your teenage boy looking at pornography because everyone's doing it, you have a problem with the law because it's hypocritical. Because Jesus said, if you would look at a woman lustfully, you're committing adultery against her in your heart. Looking at porn is sexual sin. And we need to call people to repent of that just as much as any other sexual sin. If, if you're willing to say those who practice homosexuality do not belong in leadership in the church, but you don't have that same standard for those who gossip and lie and who are irreverent, towards God in worship, you don't understand the law and its purpose. You see, all of these things are sin. They are all violations of God's law, which means we need to call everyone who is in sin to repentance and faith. That means your cousin who gossips too much, 
That means your granddaughter who moved in with her boyfriend that you know they're not sleeping in two different beds. That means your brother who, who gets drunk every weekend. And that means your best friend who steals from his employer. We're to use the law not as a club uh, to beat people into submission with. We need to use it as a mirror to lovingly show others how they fall short so they can see the danger that they're in. Because that's the truth about lawbreakers. The unjust are in the worst kind of danger. They're in danger of stepping off into eternity, meeting a holy and righteous and just God who's going to judge them according to this law. It was laid down for them, Paul said. We need to see and use the law as a mirror. We need to, we need to do so lovingly and without hypocrisy, which means we don't need to be singling out a particular group and beating them over the head with the Scriptures. We don't need to categorize a group of people and say that you're worse off than the others. What we, need, we need to bear witness to the truth and call all people who are in sin to repent and believe. All unrepentant sin. All who are in rebellion against God. And that even includes those we know to be Christians who fall into sin. We're to bear witness to them and call them to repent. Now that we have un unpacked all of it, let's talk about how we live in this truth as a church. It's about how us living out the purpose of law. In fact, let's just quickly review what we know real quick and what we, so we know what to do with this. What is God's, what's God's law? It's the moral law. Summarized in the Ten Commandments. The purpose of the law? To bear witness to God's character, to restrain sin. It acts as a mirror showing us our sin and our need for Christ. And it's a tool of sanctification to help us to see where we fall short and reminds us of our need for Christ. And how do we use the law rightly? Well, that really depends on who you're dealing with. Those who are unjust, those who are willfully unrepentant, breaking God's law, we use the law to demonstrate for them and the world around us, the holy, righteous, and just character of God. Right? And, and this is important. I want you to hear me. This is an important part of it because there's something in us as Christians who want to go the soft way and just say, God is so loving and He just loves you and He's so awesome and He just loves you. And, and if you will just love Him, He'll love you. And, and believe me, I want you to understand, I understand that approach. I feel that approach. It's hard. It's hard to show people their sinful nature. But here's the truth. If, we, if they never learn the character of God, they're not going to understand their need to repent and believe. We must continually bear witness to the truth about who God is in His character. And the law makes that clear, that He's perfect, holy, and righteous, and just. And He will see that His justice is done. And then we need to remind them the truth was written on their hearts. God's law is written on their hearts. They know right from wrong because of the character and the nature of God is revealed in their hearts. And they're internally restraining, restrained from doing evil because of that law. In fact, they know that He exists even though they'll deny Him. In fact, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness do what? They suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So, we are, so, they are not, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God and give thanks to Him. 
but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, and became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. But I want you to notice what he says in verse 29. He says, They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, haunty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. They, though they know, look at this, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve what? Deserve to die. They'd not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. The law of God reveals God's holy character and it bears witness in their hearts about what is right and wrong. And we need to remind them of that. And then we need to take the law and use it as a mirror to show them that they already, what they already know to be true. We need to lovingly take the law of God and show them who they are. They need, we need to show them that God requires perfect obedience and they need to see and know and admit that they have failed. And we need to show them that they are helpless to do anything about it on their own. They need to look in the mirror and see that they're a helpless wretch in light of God's law. Only then can they see what they really need. They don't need more self-help books. They don't need more money, though you might argue with me about that. They don't need more people to call them friends. They don't need culture's validation. They don't need a bunch of rules they can't keep anyway. They don't need religious rituals. They don't need man-made temples and strange temple ceremonies. <clears throat> what they need is, is what they need is desperately they need Christ. We use the law not to assault them. We use the law to lovingly point them to their need for Jesus, helping them to see that they're lawbreakers and they're hopeless. Right? Isn't trying harder to keep the law? Their hope is in Christ, who kept the law for them by faith. They're not made righteous by their own efforts. They're made righteous and their sins are washed away by Christ, and then the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of them, helping them to do what they couldn't do before, become obedient to God's law. Now, how, that's how we use the law rightly for the unjust. But then what about the just? Because we talked about the, the law still has application for the Christian. What about us in Christ? I think our confession, again, is really helpful. It says, and I'll come back to the same place, true believers are not under the law as a covenant of works to be justified or condemned by it, yet it is very useful to them. Notice that. The law is useful and, and to others as a rule of life that informs them the will of God and their duty. We use the law as Christians to remind ourselves and others of our duty and the, and the will of God. It also directs and obliges them to live according to its precepts. It also exposes sinful corruption in their nature, hearts, and lives. As they examine themselves in light of the law, they come to further conviction of humiliation for and hatred of sin, along with a clear view of their need for Christ and the perfection of His obedience. We also use the law with Christians and ourselves to remind each other and ourselves that our continual need for Christ and His grace. When you fall down and make a mess of your life, when you fall into sin, right? your need is not to get up and dust yourself off and say, I need to try harder. You need to turn to Christ and say, Lord, save me. I can't do this. 
you need to change my heart. You need to give me the power to do this. I am in, I'm unable. I'm relying on you and you alone. By the way, don't allow yourself to get caught up in that spiritual penalty box. I spent so many years of that of my life in there, you know, where you fall down and make a mess of, of your life where you just sin, you keep sinning, you can't seem to get over something. And every time you just feel like God's just going to hate me and he's just going to reject me now because I'm just so terrible and awful, right? And then you think, if I'll just avoid God long enough, maybe things will calm down and come back to him later on when I feel a bit better about myself. That is the wrong way for us to live as Christians. When you fall down, repent and believe the gospel. Turn to God immediately. He's there. He knows you. He knows what you're going to do. You need Christ continually. Next, it says the promises of the law likewise show them God's approval of obedience and the blessings they might they may expect. Wait a minute. Oh, I'm jumping ahead of myself. I apologize. They back up just a little bit. It says the law is also useful to the regenerate or believers to restrain their corruptions because it forbids sin. The punishment threatened by the law shows them that whatever their sin deserves and what troubles they may expect in this life due to their sin, even though they are freed from the curse and the undiminished severity of it. In other words, if you're a Christian right, and you fall into sin, you're not losing your salvation. But there is still a promise of, of consequences in this life. And I think the clearest example in the Bible of that is, is King David. King David fell into egregious sin, and when he was confronted with it, he repented and believed Right? And he trusted in Christ, but he still lived with the harsh consequences of his sin. Remember, you know, his, his child died, but also God said that you'll never ever be without trouble anymore the rest of your life. In fact, his, his, son, his son Absalom rebelled against him. It's a consequence. We might escape damnation for our sin, but there'll still be consequences for our sin. Then it says the promise likewise of the law likewise shows that God's approval for obedience and blessing they may expect when they keep it, even though these blessings are not owed to them by the law as a covenant of works. Right, finally, we, we, we can use the law to remind us that there is a blessing in pursuing holiness. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I want you to hear me on this. Sometimes doing the right thing is hard, but I want you to know that walking in holiness and wanting to be right with God and wanting to be obedient to His Word, there is blessing in that. Because, amen, that's right. There's, because there's intimacy with God in that, and there's also being able to walk with your head up always knowing right, that you didn't compromise. There is blessing in obedience. You see, as Christians, our relationship with the law has changed because our hearts have changed. And as such, our attitudes about the law should change as well. In fact, as I'm going to wrap up with Brian Chappell as he writes, we should, delight in God, we should delight in God's delight. Mere outward conformity to the law is not what God requires. The person who does what God says with a resentful heart and begrudging obedience does not bear the mark of the true child of light. The heart renewed by the Spirit desires to please God, is anxious to find out what He desires, and is motivated by the sense of bringing God pleasure. Brothers and sisters, let us take pleasure in the law of God, the law that He loves, right? the law that drives us to the gospel, the law that on which we stand to grab hold of the blessings of Christ. Let us learn this law. Let us use it wisely for, for the good of others. 
and let us use it especially for the glory of our God. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.